0: It's like having a good practice. It's not hard to have a good practice. It's hard to have a practice where you actually make gains. I think coaching individual players is the same thing. People talk about communication. It's not hard to take a guy out for lunch and have a good lunch where he feels good about it and you feel good about it. I think the trick is, is that the meetings set the tone for the off season and that you both leave feeling the
1: same way. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today's episode is a timely replay of one of our favorite and most popular conversations from 2021 with Charlotte Hornets head coach, Steve Clifford. This conversation is especially applicable to this time of year, as we dive deep into the areas of conducting a postseason team analysis, meetings with players, off-season staff growth and development, and talk pillars of great defense and teaching rim protection during the always fun start, sub, or sit. One of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at Or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Steve Clifford. Coach, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us today. We're really excited to talk to you. I'm looking forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Coach. We want to dive in with postseason analysis. Right now, as we're recording this, a lot of seasons are coming to a close for coaches, all different levels and starting to think about how you can have a productive offseason and sort of look back on the season that you just had had and what you did well, what maybe you need to work on and all the things that would go into a year in review for you. And so I guess we'll start there kind of broadly. And How would you think about having a good postseason analysis?
0: I think in the NBA, you know, one of the major advantages is we have such big analytic groups. And so I think part of it just starts with just the numbers, where you were at offensively, where you were at defensively, the different areas that you did well in, areas you didn't do as well in. So I think that gives you a general place to start like it does a lot of times. I think taking time, and I would say not right away, but giving yourself a few days after the season to kind of exhale and then just sitting down by yourself. And this isn't something I don't think you can do in one day, but analyzing who you view yourself as, as a coach, and then how you were able to impact your team. You know, self-reflection is obviously a big part of any job and being able to look at the job that you did and thinking, you know, this year I did a good job with this, not as good a job with that, I think is the second part. And then the biggest part for me is it's the film, sitting down and watching the games closely and being honest with yourself about the different areas of play. And again, what your team did well and didn't do well. And I think for me, those were the major ways you can lean on your staff and get their input. And then as much as anything, there's also, there's, you know, what you did and then who you did it with. I think, you know, coach's job at the end of the day, you're in the recruiting business also, and the NBA. The coaches don't have as much say in personnel a lot of times, but our job really the challenge is to maximize your team. And the off season is the best time to be honest with yourself and get as much information you can, and then make a decision on how you did, and then what you
2: need to do to do better the next year. Starting from the beginning, when you said you would look at the numbers, what were the most important numbers that you were looking at? And then my second question: Did your gut Line up with the numbers as far as when you did your postseason and how you kind of felt about the season?
0: I think part of that goes with being on top of your team from game to game. In this league, you know, we play three, four games a week. And so after, say, the first, I'd say 12 to 15 games, You're going to know where the team ranks in every aspect of offense, every aspect of defense, including rebounding in both areas. And when you look at it at the end of the year, for instance, if you took the top teams in offensive efficiency every year, the top, say, six or seven teams, and the same with defensive efficiency, there are going to be certain things that most teams do well, you know, shooting the three, for instance. But more than anything, it's... Just like it is in college and just like it is in high school, it's penetration. You know, playing inside out is usually the number one factor. I believe this year in the NBA, as a league, I think when the ball hits the paint before a shot is taken, the league average is something like 1.15, 1.16, 1.17 versus when it doesn't, it's like 1.01, 1.02. So being able to prevent penetration, which as you guys know, is difficult now with five out offense, four out, one in offense. And then at the other end of the floor, having ways that your team can get the ball going into the paint, to the basket. And there's obviously different ways to do that. I don't think you can coach just by the numbers. You know, you still have to know your team. Know what they're capable of and play to the strengths of your best players. But if I had to, you know, again, I would say the numbers bear out that the one thing you have to be able to do is penetrate and stop penetration.
1: Coach, the other area of this postseason analysis, too, is also maybe when you sit down with your players potentially individually, in let's say an exit interview or just like a postseason wrap up. And I know you've been a college and a high school coach as well. What were the conversations like in sort of year in review with players and then looking at, you know, both back, but then also forward for those that were coming back to your program.
0: Most of the time in the time I've been a head coach, I like to do that later in the summer. I like to have time to watch film. I think that when you're talking to players in any age, you don't want to be guessing, but particularly older players. You know, one of the challenges when you're coaching the NBA players, a lot of times they've played for a great high school coach, a great college coach, and three other terrific coaches in the NBA, and they have their ideas too. So I found that if you really want to have productive meetings, you need to be able to talk factually and show them again by the numbers. Maybe sometimes with film, but what I've always done is in the off season is wait three, four weeks at the earliest until I've been able to watch some film look at their numbers for the year, and then sit down and talk to them as they start their, you know, the next phase to get ready for the next season. I like to do it outside the arena, dinners, lunches, breakfast, coffee, and it always starts with, you know, letting them talk first. You know, I think it's good to get their view on where they feel they're at and what they need to do for the off season to get ready for the next season.
1: And coach, is there a film that you would watch with players in the off season as well? Or is it just you would let them know what you saw on film that would need to be improved?
0: For sure. I mean, I think we all have our things that we're comfortable with. And, and it starts so much with knowing where you're at. You know, obviously my background in the NBA was dictated so much by the guys I worked for and the guys I worked with. Again, it's preparation. It's like having a good practice. It's not hard to have a good practice. It's hard to have a practice where you actually make gains. I think coaching individual players is the same thing. People talk about communication. It's not hard to take a guy out for lunch and have a good lunch where he feels good about it and you feel good about it. I think the trick is is that the meetings set the tone for the offseason. And that you both leave feeling the same way. I think you have to get ready for those meetings, just like you do getting ready for practice, you know, where you have your objectives, you have your things that you want to get across or share with the player. So it is productive. You know, I think you guys would agree with this at any level of coaching. I'm not confrontational by nature, but if there's not some level of conflict, usually there's very little gain. And I think all of these things play into that.
2: Coach, I'd like to just follow up on what you said, the difference between a good practice and making gains in practice. And I think you alluded to a little bit with confrontation. So what is the difference?
0: I think that we, and this has never changed. I think from, you know, my dad was a highly successful high school coach in Northern New England. And I remember when he would have the meetings with his staff over the years, when I was younger, he would let me sit in the kitchen as long as I didn't talk. And one of the things that he used to talk about was same thing, progress. Are we getting better? Or do they just have a good attitude about this? And that's never changed. You know, you can go watch a high school practice. I mean, I recruited for a long time and you could go to practices and say, well, that's a great practice. And maybe they just did the same drills they do every day versus another guy's practice where. Maybe there was more stoppage, maybe not as much flow, maybe not as quite as much positivity. But when you really evaluate it and you say, now that guy's a teacher, or that guy wanted to make sure that today they got their half court sets down or whatever it was, you know? So I just think that being prepared and in our leagues a little bit different this way we play so many games that if you can get one or two things done in practice that are really productive, you've probably done well. Practices are shorter. Guys are tired. If you see them every day, again, playing three or four games a week against great talent, where if you don't play well, you have no chance. They do. You have to be very conscious of their bodies and you want their best physical and mental attitudes for the game. So that part's different too. But I think You know, them knowing practice is important to you is a big part of it. Why do we practice explaining that to them? And then coming in and most of the time, letting them know, this is what I'm looking for today. This is what we need to improve on today. And I think that sets the tone to have the right attitude to make
2: gains. When you know guys are tired, does there have to be five on five? Does there have to be a competitive element for you to make gains or to accomplish those one or two goals you set for that practice?
0: No, I think ideally, like if you're going to work on half court execution, that's the best way to do it. I think what you find in our league is what you have to try to get to is an environment around your group where they use every opportunity to get better. A teaching segment, film segment, you know, there. like when Brooklyn, you know, we use the term vitamins when they're working with their individual coaches for that, whatever, 20, 25 minutes a day. That doesn't have to be just skill work. You know, that could be screening. Yeah. That could be using a screen. That could be pursuit and pick and roll coverage. That could be for a big guy, their drops or whatever it is. So I think using every opportunity. And it's the same at every level, again, is that shared vision of how we're going to make progress or the importance of your team getting better. You know, I heard a great quote early this year, probably you guys are too. I'm a sports denier. So I watch all sports and, Sean Payton had to quote, I think it was between week one and week two. And he said, right now, we're all in a race to see who makes progress the quickest. And that's who wins earlier in the year. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the same across the board for every team sport at every level.
1: Coach, kind of going back a little bit to the postseason analysis stuff, um, talked about how you might talk with players and deal with their offseason. How about other members of your staff, like say younger assistants or people that you're sort of mentoring that you're you know, you know, want to improve and how you maybe talk with them about their seasons and going forward with whatever organization you're with.
0: I mean, for sure. And and I think that was one of the things that I got from working for both Jeff and Stan. They were great about giving direction, you know, things that you could work on to get better. And then are giving you also, I would say the level of responsibility that you needed so that you could work on that. Now, to be honest, that's an even bigger part of the NBA because our staffs have grown so much. I guess it was twenty-two or twenty-three years ago when I went to the Knicks with Jeff, I was the advanced scout and I was really around the team. But the advanced scout, you're like the fourth assistant. You know, now, I mean, we have, I think with the Nets, we have three on front of the bench and maybe six guys behind the bench. The advanced scout is never with the team. So All of that has changed. And I think with that, you know, a basic tenant of leadership, as you guys know, is that the more people you have around, the more probability there is for problems, you know, if you're not all together. So I think what is done as a head coach is you spend even more time with your assistants and particularly the younger guys to make sure that you're on the same place in terms of what they're good at, what you feel they can get better at, but also the togetherness part. You know, this is a Jeff Van Gundy quote, you know, team chemistry is greatly impacted by staff chemistry. And as staffs have gotten bigger, that's become a more and more difficult aspect of being an NBA
1: head coach. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Weemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping today. Thanks to Huddle for the support, and now back to our conversation. Bringing a full picture now, like you mentioned earlier in your first comments about in the postseason analysis, looking at film and numbers and all that goes into it. And at the very end of that, when you figure out, okay, maybe we underachieved in this part of our season, or maybe we overachieved in this part of our season, and you start looking at how you can actually improve in the off-season, what does your off-season look like to improve or continue improving in the areas you did or did not do well?
0: Is everything from the work that you do within the rules, obviously, with the players. And then I think that's your work that you're working with the staff on. So whether it's pick and roll defense and you say our personnel is similar to Team B's personnel. You know, maybe you have one assistant do a project on their pick and roll defense. Maybe you want to play a zone and you get in touch with, you know, five or six guys in college that, you know, are good zone coaches. But whatever it is, there's so much information. I mean, again, you can do a lot of it now right on the internet, you know, getting on YouTube and watching clinics or watching European teams play or whatever it is. I mean, there's so many ways that you can improve your base of knowledge in any aspect of our game so that for me is anything that you want to be doing the first day of training camp is that stuff's all got to be done in July and August. You know, so you have time to get with the staff, walk through it, see how you like it. You don't want to be experimenting things in your mind, you know, when you start training camp, you want to have a good idea of what your plan
2: is and which things you're more committed to. Coach, how would you improve how you teach in the off season? You know, like you said, there's so much information when it comes down to like getting your guys to do it. How do you improve how you're going to get that transfer, how you're going to help them and teach them?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think that's one of the great things about being an assistant in our league, where, you know, first of all, you're going to have some type of involvement, probably in summer league, you know, where you're getting younger players or guys that played in Europe, whatever, that you're going to have a chance to have four or five practices with, and you'll be involved in some aspect of that, whether you're the head coach or one of the assistants, which gives you possibilities for teaching or presenting things in front of the group. Even as a head coach, things that you want to work on, I think NBA staff spend a lot of time, particularly in August, going in the gym and reviewing how we're going to teach things. So everybody's talking the same language, making the same teaching points, looking for the same results. And then to be honest with you, I think part of that is you can just practice by yourself. You know, I mean, I remember, and I'd been in the NBA for a few years, but I remember my first year with the Lakers, you know, it was an entirely new staff. I know Mike Brown a little bit. That's who initially hired me there. It was, we had a strong staff, you know, Bernie Bickerstaff and Andy Jordan, Darvin Ham, Phil Handy, Chuck Person. It was a lot of fun, but I know those guys and I wanted to make sure I got off to a good start. And our roster was some big time names, Kobe, Steve, Powell, Gasol, Dwight, Howard, Metapiece. And so I remember the first day of training camp, Mike had told me, you know, he wanted me to introduce individual and help defense. And I practiced for three days in my apartment, you know, because you wanted to get it right, not be looking at your notes. The majority of film sessions that I do or I did as a head coach, I would memorize the film. I never went out and just showed film. I mean, that would be part of my practice preparation for the day would be say there were 15 clips. I believe you need to keep it much more than that. 15 may even be a little bit too much for the way people are today. But I would memorize the clips and I would memorize what I wanted to teach, the way I wanted to teach it. And they know, the players know, when you start, you know, you can do things, obviously, hey, before you turn it on, these first three of transition defense. This isn't okay. And you can just give them. But again, I think one, it helps you practice being a better teacher, having clarity in the way you speak. And number two, it shows the players how prepared you are.
1: You mentioned early on about taking a chance to exhale, to relax, to reflect on the season as part of like your own personal post analysis. Is there anything specifically you would do to kind of decompress and reflect that was helpful for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's obviously is, everybody's different. I've, you know, I've had some health issues where I wasn't great at that, but I do think it's critical, whether it's, you know, getting away, reading, time with family, tennis, golf, you know, exercising more, whatever it is. But I think you have to have something where you can shut this off. I do think that finding a balance so that you can get refreshed in the offseason, just like jobs are so demanding. If it's college, you play 28 games or whatever it is in the NBA, 82 games. I do think it's important that you function during the season so that you're fresh for all of those games. And that gets down to having a routine and knowing your body and doing what you have to do. So, you know, you want your guys to be mentally and physically, and the coach has to be the same
2: way. Coach, are there other sports that you would look to to try to learn to improve your teaching? I would say two things. One of the great things about college was
0: obviously, you know, you're, working closely with other coaches. I go all the way back to when I was at Boston University and I was working for a great coach. It's actually Brett Brown's dad, Bob Brown, who's a legend in New England. And BU had a good football team. then. you guys may remember you know, Tony Sperano, who was a head coach in the NFL. He was the offensive coordinator. You know how it is. We used to play pickup basketball at lunchtime, the football staff and the basketball staff. So when I wasn't recruiting, they used to let me sit, you know, in the box. He wasn't on the field. He'd be up on the box. And I learned a lot from them about play calling and things like that. When I was in Charlotte, I established a really good friendship with Ron Rivera, who was the head coach, you know, of the Carolina Panthers. And I used to go to practice quite often. I remember once OTAs, he let me bring, I brought Michael Kidd, Gilchrist, Cody Zeller, Johnny O'Brien. For the day, because, you know, football, NFL guys' day, it's a lot different than an NBA player's day. And the OTAs, they were there, I think they started at like 7.30 in the morning, got done about 3.30. Now, for our guys, that's a week, you know. <laughs> and uh, those guys were all three, easy to coach, great work ethic. They're in the summer. to, And I remember when we walked out and they were like, they do that every day. And I said, this is the off season." So over the years, I've done a lot. Of people with different things. I I mean, one of my favorite days, I took six dribble handoff clips, all defense, six pick and roll clips. And Ron and Steve Wilkes, who was his defensive coordinator then, he was the head coach a couple of years later with Arizona. They broke them down for me. I was trying to see if there'd be coverage, but we use like, for instance, we always talk about targets when they were tackling, get a target, get a square target. We use that. They use the term defensive presence, which just speaks to like awareness and anticipation. We use that defensively. I got a ton from those guys, but we sat down for a couple hours. They loved it. We got lunch. I ran the clips and said, like, how would you guard that? And they broke it into like how they would do it. some of it. They are allowed so much more contact. Sure, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you couldn't do it, but it was a great afternoon though.
2: Coach, can I just follow up with your time with coach Sperano What did you learn from play calling?
0: Well, I think it's very similar to our game. What they did, and I hear players will say this or announcers will say this on the NFL games is they had their same thing. They had their plays. They had their, you know, menu of plays where it was playing to the strength of their best players, taking advantage of the quarterback, the best receiver or whatever. And then within that, they had their matchups, how they would get a matchup, how they get the best receiver matched with a linebacker how they could get their back running at the, you know, the weaker part of the offensive line. And to me, that's very similar to basketball, right? Where you're going to have a style of play and, you know, there can be the, I don't know, maybe the set play part where you're going to certain players and then the end of my offense or motion kind of concept thing where they're playing ball and you still need the ball to get to where it needs to go so your team can play well. So I just thought there were a lot of aspects of football, and it's different because the play stops every time, that was similar to our game. To me now, the best teams in our league, they're good at all of it. I had a couple teams in Orlando here. You know, we ranked well in set plays. After timeouts, side out of bounds, after free throws, dead ball backcourt, half court offense, when we were in sets, we were good. And then we weren't as good. When it was the end of offense, when we were just playing ball. And then the last year we were here, we tried to fix that. And before injuries, we were actually on our way, but our set play wasn't as good and our end of offense was a lot better. So it was a good learning experience because, as you guys know, it gets back to the same the things you spend the most time on, you know, you have the best chance to get good at.
1: I would just love to know you said you got better at end of shot clock offense where they were just playing. Maybe specifically, how did you? Get better at that? Was it just how you practiced it or more emphasis on it?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it for us, it was the reads. And it was also, to be honest, that was one of the things that I spent the most time on with guys individually the summer before. One of the things that's great about coaching older guys, I do think they can learn quicker. You know, they've played more, they've played for different coaches. So just getting them again to, as Coach Knight used to say, the best players get to the best options you know, knowing and then coaching more in a way that at the end of offense and a lot of times for us, it's, you know, you only have 10, 11 seconds. You run a set play. It's not there. Not a lot of time is saying that's not wrong. But what I see is Vucevic is over here. Markell is here. Let's get to them, you know, or let's get to this action. And actually one of the guys, he did a great job with it. His name is Pat Delaney. He's the lead assistant now with Wes Unseld in Washington. And he did a series of three on O. And that was the way we warmed up almost every day. We would take versus switching, versus the drop, any defensive coverage. And he spent the whole summer coming up with a series of warm-up drills that I thought helped our team immensely. You know, basically took NBA coverages, be it pick and roll, dribble handoff, screening action off the ball, post ups, whatever it was. And we worked on the reads, the counters. The other thing I liked, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but I've always found starting practice to be one of the hardest things to do, where you want to set a tone where they're getting loose and there's injury prevention. And the thing I liked about this is, you know, we used the video guys as token defenders, and they were only going about three quarter speed. But so there was a level of concentration and intensity they had to have to make the right reads. And I felt like it got them into practice a lot better. You know, college, you can sometimes just yell at them, and that doesn't really go so well in our league. So <laughs> I thought it was,
2: uh, yeah, I, th- I liked it. You know, I think that's a great point. I and mean, that's something I struggle with. Like, do you just have three kind of rote? warm-up drills? Or is it every day a new warm-up drill? Then maybe they're overthinking because it's always new. So like, it's really hard striking that balance.
0: No question. I mean, I remember I was a division two coach at Adelphi University in Long Island. This would have been when I was in my thirties. And we used to do this drill called the perfection drill that I got from Fran Frischella. It was great at St. John's, where it was starting off with a tight three-man weave to a wider three-man weave to two men up and down shooting and they had to do you know 20 of this they I think there was 4 minutes on the clock and if they made it we started to practice and if they didn't they do it again and i look back on that and it was great except obviously the goal was such you wanted them to make it and they'd be loose but there literally takes no concentration you know they had to have effort but and in our league where again You're only going to be able to do so many things a day if you want them to do it well. This, I found, was a great way to get the concentration part of. And they would talk to each other, you know? And Because when I say you can't yell at them, the misnomer is you can't coach NBA players. It's not true at all. I think in many ways, they're the easiest guys to coach. And I think the best players I've ever been around, they want it to be intense and they want it to be demanding. So I think that these drills, in my opinion were an ideal way to start practice most days.
1: Coach, this has been great so far. We want to shift now to another segment of the podcast that we call Start, Sub or Sit. What we'll do is we'll give you three different basketball topics. We'll ask you to start one, sub one and sit one and then we'll kind of have a fun discussion based off of your answers. So if you're ready, coach, we'll dive right in on this. Okay. Okay. The theme of this first question for you is back to school. We know you've been a high school and a college coach in your past as well. And so if you were to go from the NBA back to a, a lower level, start, sub, or sit, these three different types of overall defensive philosophies that you would use, would you be a pressing trapping team, a zone team, or a half court man-to-man team?
0: Yeah. Half-court man-to-man for sure. So I have to say, what would I do next if I couldn't do that? Yeah. yeah. I would probably say zone and then I would do the third would be pressing trapping, I guess.
1: Okay. So coach, you were pretty quick to start the half-court man-to-man. I know that's something you love and have been great at your career. I guess a little bit why that would be where you would go at the lower level.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean... You know, it's funny is to give you an example, I was a high school coach for two years. Then I was an assistant for nine years before I got a head job as a division two coach. So I'd been four years at a division two school and then the rest division one recruiting. And it's funny, I got the job at Adelphi, which was a really good job. We had to get three recruits that summer when I got the job. And actually my assistant was a guy, you guys may know, Joe Mantegna, who's the head coach at Blair Academy. He's had an incredible career. So we got to Long Island and, you know, we used the summer recruiting, recruiting. We got the three kids, like late July, they committed. And, you know, and I had grown up with, my dad was a great coach. I played Division three for a tremendous coach. I had worked for, I mentioned Bob Brown. I'd worked for a guy named Keith Dixon, who just got Division two decade coach of the year, two or three years ago at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. Mitch Bonagura, who had been a mass amino assistant. For a guy, Bob Beyer. We worked together after that in the NBA. I'd worked for some really good coaches who coached many different ways. You know, with Bob Brown, we played all matchup zones. Same with Keith Dixon. Bob Beyer, we ran block remover. Keith Dixon, we ran motion. Coach Brown, we ran the flex. So I had all these things. And anyway, I just remember we got the commitment from the third guy. And, you know, I'd been around a little bit. So I was like 35 maybe. And I remember sitting down and saying, I have no idea what I'm going to do offensively or defensively. <laughs> and it was a school where we were going to be athletic. You know, it's the kind of place I was there four years. We gave two high school kids money. We did all New York City kid transfers, junior college guys. I had known a lot of people in the city by then. So we were big. We were strong. We were, you know, basically a top 20 team every year, four straight NCAA tournaments. And yet, I knew then is my comfort level was, we're going to be big and quick and athletic, we'll steal the ball within 22, 23 feet of the basket. But all I know is, and I still feel the same way, when guys raise up in their range, we uncontested shot, I just get that feeling in the pit of my stomach. When we're giving up layups or we're fouling, it doesn't work for me. And so I don't know why that is. You know, maybe playing for my dad, that's how we played in college. I'd worked for coaches who are a lot of other ways, but I like it because you can have hard and fast rules. I'm a firm believer that you've got to spend a ton of time on individual and help defense. And then obviously in our league it's the pick and roll piece. But I like being able to say, you know, Aaron Gordon, you're a great defender. You have Kawhi, you have LeBron. This is how we're going to help you, but this is your baby. And I think that leads to having a true defensive mentality. So I think some of it is, it's just what you like, what you're comfortable with. Sure. My problem with pressing in zones is, and I work for some great zone coaches. I like the zone. I have a comfort level playing zone. I just don't like that. You know, I thought, uh, yeah, I thought that was, and I don't care how good you are at it. It's going to happen. Again, that's just a personal preference. The thing I don't like about pressure is I just think it makes it hard to beat the best teams. When I was at Adelphi, we had great point guards and the teams that press, I used to tell them like, there's no way they should be able to press us. If we're just organized, get him the ball, get in your spots, we should get good shots. And I'm also, I'm going to say this, I've recruited for a long time. The get great athletes and pressure and wear the other teams down, please. (laughs) You play twice a week in college and they're 19, 20 year old, I had a kid one year, he was actually Division Two. Well, I left, but he was Division Two National Player of the Year with one of the, like, Basketball Weekly or something. When he was a sophomore, he got tired, I just called timeout. He played 40 minutes every night and he was fine. And in high school, even the same thing, 32 minutes at 17 years old, get out of here. If they can't do that, that's your fault for not being in shape. <laughs> I don't buy the, you know... Usually, when P say they wear people down and you watch them play, yeah, because they have the nine best players (laughs) better than the team they're doing. That's my, those are my (laughs) observations, you know,
1: for sure. Coach, so I love the the half-court man-to-man stuff and your comfort level with it. I would imagine as you went on in your career as a coach, though, that some of the man-to-man principles, or maybe not, but did they change it all for you? Like with the rise of switching more actions, so being able to switch, but still have the same tough mentality that you would have with teams that didn't switch.
0: Absolutely. I mean, for instance, you get to the pick and roll dribble handoff piece. The switching is, I mean, anything that doesn't result in a significant mismatch, you should switch to me. It's simpler. There's no rotations. You don't have to help as much off the ball. And especially in this world of five out, it just makes everything so you don't get so spread out. So for sure. Also the way I did it, and I got this a lot from Jeff and Stan is we always had a switching group, you know? So Sometimes it might be a forward switching, you know, here in Orlando, you guys will know these guys, you know, like for instance, when we played Kim Birch at five with Jonathan Isaac at four and Aaron Gordon at three, you can switch. Hmm. There's no problem. That's one switching group, you know, with the guards, you know, Markel, Fultz, Evan Fournier, those guys, you can switch some of the other guys. You have to have another scheme. Again, the amount of help you know, how much help you have to give in every situation is the thing that's become more difficult, right? With five out, four out, more skill on the floor. So anything that you can do, which makes it simpler on the ball and limits how much you have to help early off the ball gives you the best chance, in my opinion.
2: Coach, what was your definition of a significant mismatch that you wouldn't switch then?
0: So I'll just use, he won't mind this because he's one of my, two of them, actually two of my favorite guys I've ever had the privilege of coaching is take Kemba Walker and Charlotte or DJ Augustine here mm-hmm. in Orlando. And those guys, just because of their size, they both had very good defensive technique. They're giving up three, four, five inches. And in this level, it's not just the rolling into the post. It's the ability to contest a shot against a good player. And the numbers are overwhelming that even if a shot, and I'm talking about how close, if you can't impact a shot, you know, most of the guys in our league, they get in their range, they're going to make it. I would say that would be an example. You know, another guy here, and he knows this, and I love him. Again, I love that Terrence Ross here, you know, in Orlando, there was nights when he'd be in the switching group. But you know we weren't going to switch him on to Kawhi, you know, or on yeah. to LeBron or guys like that. So you have to have another coverage that they can execute. Which again, even a show, it puts more heat on those other
2: three guys in the protection part of
0: your defense.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I guess, and that was what I was kind of looking for. Was it more like? the physical disadvantages that would scare you rather than maybe if this guy's not a great defender, but he's still equal size, would you be more willing to let's switch it?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also there are like, for me, you win or lose for the same reasons at every level of basketball It's simply put, you know, you turn the ball over a lot. You know, you don't run back on defense. You get hammered on the glass. You foul a lot. You're going to lose, right? I mean, unless you just have such overwhelming talent that you can make up for that in other areas, right? The one difference in the NBA, it's the shot making part. I think in college, when you watch games, you can get open shots easier. In our league, you take like Kevin or Kyrie, people can say, RGC takes a lot of contested shots. They're going to make them. They're two of the great shot makers of whatever the last decades, not just three, four years. And a hard contest with those two guys is not that big of a deal. But there's also most of the good scorers. The size thing is important and also just a little bit of separation. So I think there's a lot of times when you're watching film and you say, we were right there. And if you're honest and you really want your defense to good, it's really is the offensive player. Playing totally in rhythm where he's not hurried and not bothered. And I do think that's the exceptionality of the NBA players that you have to watch before you
2: decide, in your mind, what's a mismatch. All right, coach, our next start sub sit for you. We call it tough to teach, and it has to do with your big man and a drop pick and roll coverage. Okay. So tough to teach these three aspects for your big man the footwork of just getting him to backpedal, to move having active hands or his rim decisions when to commit to the ball or, you know, we see a lot they'll commit and the point guard just kind of shovels it off. I would say for me,
0: it would start with the footwork piece. I think for most guys, you now there may be some differences, you know, some guys are just naturally phenomenal at that stuff. Then I would say use of hands. And then I think the third one, the decision-making at the rim. The other thing about that, I would say, I think that you can make hard and fast rules if necessary to help clean up the stuff at the rim just by giving them two-on-two rules about when you're going to, whatever term you're going to use, late red, fear back, mm-hmm. what you're going to do. And then working on that repetitiously, I think they can get better at that. And that too, though, as you guys know, there's some guys that just have great instincts for that stuff and some guys that struggle with it. but. That's what I would say.
2: Okay. So your sit is what kind of interests me the most. What would be some of your hard and fast rules as terms when, yeah, you do that late switch? Was it a certain point on the court? We used to do, because I do think the other part of
0: this is like, for instance, the starting position, right? Where do you want him to start? Well, a lot of it has to do with his ability. And then also a lot of it has to do the effectiveness is the ability of the guy on the ball. No. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how good your perimeter defenders are obviously greatly impacts the defender on the screener. I think also how much can he handle? Like, for instance, you know, we had Vucevic here and I think we had two top 10 defensive teams. I know we were one year. And the next year we might have been 10, 11, 12 in there. And see, with him, you could switch up during the game, during a timeout, just tell him to change it. He could do it instantly. His basketball IQ and feel for things is just so good. Or he might even come back and say, you know, like, hey, this group is in, why don't we drop more?" You know, he's not quick, quick, nor is he slow. But again, his IQ allowed us to do a lot more different things. So to get back to the switching though, so we would do, for instance, if I was on the ball and say I got picked, there was a lot of separation for whatever reason we used to do when the shoulders turned. So if the guy, the, the defender on the screener, if I see his shoulders turn, which means that guy had a chance to get around him, that was not, we used to use the term veer. Oh, okay. And then it would be a verbal call of veer. And then we would work that out. That's in the middle of the floor on the, is that what you're asking yes, about? Yeah. yeah, yeah now yeah, yeah. On, a, on a flare, that's on the roll, on the flare, anything wonderable you know we would say guys got to be able to get back the screeners got to be able to get back on the second dribble if it was penetration there's some gray area here and they had the sense of separation knowing who the shooter was mm-hmm. and we would veer quicker okay if the second dribble was way outside then to me we're going to stay try to get the pass over high hands and be able to get back get a stunt from the weak side so we would try to make as many specific rules as Kent. And that to me also, though, I think if you ask guys about what do we spend the most time on? And I think college is probably the same way in our league. If you sit down with analytics people, they're going to say individual and help, put that in the same bucket and pick and roll. So day after game, film sessions, walkthrough teaching segments, these are going to be things that are constantly talked about. Closeouts, help decision containing the ball, staying square, whatever you want to emphasize. And then the two-on-two aspect of the pick and roll, the protection aspect of the pick and roll. So that again, there's so much skill on the floor now with so much space, you have to be adaptable enough. That part, the pick and roll part, I don't think you can say specifically, this is always how we're going to do it. Yeah. You know, they got to be able to play. Listen, Steph Curry with the balls a lot different than when they take them out,
1: you know. Right. Yeah.
0: And you've got to be able to adapt accordingly.
1: I'd love to ask you about drop coverage in late game situations because you see it go away quite a bit in end of game situations with guys that can make shots at the mid range level. And your thoughts on a guy who's great in drop, but then now he's in the game in crunch time and you need him to, like you said, be adaptable to the coverage. So, I guess just the thoughts on the drop level or not dropping late game.
0: For me, the numbers would bear this out. My last two years as a head coach, I became blitz happy because, you know, I know the numbers say, you know, allow hurried, contested pull-up twos. I lost too many games letting guys like Chris Paul shoot, you know, hurried, contested pull-up twos (laughs) where he doesn't miss late in the game, you know? Yeah. So I think that we became more aggressive, I think there's two ways to go, right? You can either even get softer with it and live with it or be more aggressive. So if you don't have a center where you can switch, I think the blitz is the way to go. And I like it. If you look at the numbers in the NBA, blitz is good coverage. Yeah, There's also things you can do, which people do to us, and you've seen it more and more. The Clippers do a great job with this, where you can switch and then run and hit, you know, so you can protect, you know, if you don't feel like you can switch and leave your center on a point guard, for instance, which is most of them. So there's things that you can do out of it. And again, this gets all this stuff to me gets back to what you guys were talking about in summer evaluation. What's our base? How much can we get good at? What will the guys be comfortable with? What are the teaching points which will make it, you know, give it clarity for the group? And then what are we going to have to do in the last four or five minutes of the game against exceptional players? Now, I'll also say this. We got to this the last couple of years here in Orlando. I had a great staff and those guys spent a lot of time. We would have exceptional player coverages for the whole game. So like, for instance, you're playing Steph. Any pick and roll with him, whether we were and we would be up. But no matter what, we never try to blow up the screen or fight over the screen. We try to not let him drive away and get right on the back hit, so that no matter what, he knew we were coming from behind. You know, yeah. there were. I don't want to get into all of it, but we had three or four things like that. So the guys knew tonight. <laughs> Steph Curry is an exceptional ball handler. We're going to our, an exceptional ball handler, pick and roll coverage. Okay, no trying to blow it up. Never under. That 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 that. The bigs are up. You know, like that.
2: My last follow-up is just getting back to the drop coverage, teaching the footwork. You know, what was important to you, especially when, like you said, it didn't come natural to your big?
0: Well, I think then that so much of it is lateral quickness and reading and understanding what are they capable of doing, right? So that then I think it's also teaching them on areas of the floor so they don't get too extended and yet they can still stop the ball. You know, so like, for instance, in the middle of the floor, most guys, unless they're incredibly quick, I didn't want them, you know, you don't want them, they can straddle with the pro lane line, but you know, you don't want them getting all the way out and opening up the pocket pass more. So I think depending on their quickness and all guys are different If guys are quick and great with their hands. Sometimes you don't have to say too much guys that are maybe less mobile, slower, I would work on them. And this does not have to be practiced. This is vitamin stuff. Mm-hmm. Doing skill work every day of using clips and showing them, okay, get comfortable not coming outside the pro lane, okay, of knowing who you're guarding, of not allowing the ball by you, you know, of not committing too much early unless the guy's really a downhill player. So I think some of it's depending on who they're playing against, but trying to contain the ball. You know, no. does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah absolutely. I, you know, I, I think the one thing that's hard is if they're not good laterally is it's hard for them to be up much at all, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like, cause the dribble around is the crusher, no matter how much, you, that's why the big drop, at least they're at the basket, you're making them shoot jumpers. When you're up and the ball handler gets around you, I don't care if it's higher side to me, that's the killer. That's where you give up layups, you're in rotation. It's four on threes, and you give up a ton of spot up threes. So, you know, helping them find their sweet spot and what they're capable of doing against different types of pick and roll players to me starts with that. And again, I think this is like off season stuff that you can have a plan for them. And again, I think not to change the subject, but player development. Obviously, that's the whole, that's the raid Right where we drafted, he's nineteen years old, and it's not just shooting and balling. Him. I mean, what's more important for a six eleven guy who's only an okay athlete and wants to play in the NBA than being able to have some decision making and flexibility and pick and roll coverages, so he has a chance. Right, you know. So instead of coming in and shooting for twenty five minutes a day or doing jump hooks, you know,
1: this is the stuff that needs to be worked on and discussed. Also, absolutely, coach. This last one is what you would consider the best foundations for an elite defense. So you've always been a great defensive coach. And so these are three different ways to build an elite defense. So one is rim protection. The second is taking away threes, limiting three-point attempts. Or the third is limiting free throw attempts. So start, sub, or sit the most important parts of an elite defense.
0: I would start with rim protection. Okay. Two would be not fouling, limit the free throws. And then three would be taking away the threes. Just because, again, by the numbers now in our league, and this has been like this for a long time, I can't give you the numbers right now, but by far the best thing you can do in our league, actually, I'm hurting my argument here, but I'm going <laughs> to is get fouled. Okay. It's the best possession, right? Yeah. But so many of those fouls are obviously drives to the rim, okay? You know, Larry Brown was great. Both Jeff and Stan were great at this of Not fouling, showing your hands, verticality, not slapping down, playing with discipline on that stuff. But I think the rim protection thing, anyway, the best thing you can do is get fouled. The second best thing is shoot a layup. Mm -hmm. You know, so I would prioritize those guys. My thing about the rim protection is if you get good at it, again, depending on your guys and they're quick to help, I think you can do all of it. If you're not giving up layups and you're disciplined about not fouling, you know, you're going to give up some threes, but as great as the shooting is in our league, it's still by far the third most efficient thing. Corner threes, the third, above the break threes, the fourth best thing. And, you know, you can't give up a million makes a game obviously, like you can't be losing the three-point shooting game by 4 or 5 or 6 a night, but if you're getting killed in the glass, if you're getting killed at the rim where you're fouling and giving up layups, you rarely win in our league. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a right explanation. And I'm kind of giving you the numbers. I'm saying it a different way. But I think that, again, the rim protection thing, however you get to it where you're helping well and giving yourself the chance to get back to the shooters would give you a chance for a well rounded defense. I will say this if you look at the teams in our league, this year that are really good defensively, most of them are built on protecting the paint, protecting the rim. We've gotten yeah. back to helping and then just closing out harder on the three-point
2: shooters. If you don't have a shot blocker and you're not overly big, you have size, what are the things you got to do well to protect the rim?
0: I'm going to give you this. Watch Oklahoma City. I think they're ninth in defense. I believe eight, ninth or ten. And they do a great job. They're super disciplined. They don't have a big shot blocker, right? But you know, they're early to react. They're early to help. I think so much of it is just not getting spread out off the ball as the ball moves. I mean, the things that we've always talked about, right? Everybody move as one. Be connected. Trust the guy beside. I mean, you know, I think so much of it is. I was thinking about this the other day. There's the element of thinking outside the box, which again, I think that the Uh, You know, five out, four out, one in has brought all that to fruition, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful I worked for the Van Gundys because both of them, I mean, as you guys probably know, we tried everything with those guys, you know, we would double from the, you know, they were the pioneers in a lot of this stuff. You know, I've done a lot of it in Charlotte and here because I was comfortable doing it. I saw that you can do it and it had, you know, sometimes it doesn't work, but, you know, overall it will. I will say you can't just play your base anymore. It's just too much offense on the floor. So being able to do those things is critical. But again, Oklahoma City, I, I say, so that's the outside of the box. I'm, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, you're fine. I also think that what teams are getting away from, if you watch the best defensive teams in Italy, it's the old school stuff. They're squaring the ball. They don't get crushed. They help better. Mm-hmm. They don't overhelp. They make good health decisions. They're not getting crushed all the time. They're not just running around where you're letting good players behind you. So I think like I'm down with the, you know, we got to be adaptable and you got to think and you got to come up with ways to do that. What I see is the teams that are doing well, they say it's not okay to get blown by on the first dribble. Get square when you close out. It's not okay to just make crazy help decisions and run through the passing lane. When a guy drives, don't slap down, show your hands. You know The fundamental areas that have always been key to playing good team defense.
1: Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. So thanks for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more question for you to close the podcast. But before we do, thank you for spending time with us today. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Coach. Coach, our last question for you. Uh, You've had a great coaching career thus far and wondering what one of the best investments that you've made in your coaching career has been.
0: Well, <laughs> I'll say this. It was a trip, actually, that in the end changed my coaching career. I had been a high school coach for two years, and Coach Brown, Bob Brown, I told you, Brett Brown's dad, let me come to St. Anselm College, a Division II school in Manchester, New Hampshire, as a volunteer. So I needed money. So that summer, My investment was I saved money and I just did a bunch of camps all over the place to learn as much basketball as I could. I slept in campgrounds. I had a Chevette scooter. I had a (laughs) a blanket. I was sleeping in the back of the car. And Coach Malone, Brendan Malone, is one of my mentors. I worked his camp when I was in college for years. He's always been great to me. And so I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, Good idea. And if you guys know him, that's all he said. And then about a week later, he called me and said, Okay. You're gonna start at five star this week, then that weekend you're gonna to go to the Poconos and you're gonna do this clinic, you're gonna watch it, and then that next week you're gonna go work Jim Beheim's camp. So, you know, I had enough money to do all that. And what happened was at Jim Beheim's camp, the whole thing was great, but at Jim Beheim's camp, my drill station was right beside Jeff Van Gundy's, who was a high school coach at that time in upstate New York. That's how I got to know Jeff. That's how, you know, we got to be good friends over the years. And then obviously, I mean, I've worked for a ton of great people, but obviously when he called and brought me to the Knicks, I mean, that was a game changer for me. And so the investment of, I knew I had to save money for the summer just so I could travel around and do these cans. Back then... Like, if I remember Five Star, they gave you, I think the check was $105 on a pair of sneakers. So driving out there was, uh, it wasn't like you were making money, you know. But I'll never forget that.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit SlappingGlass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week, coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.
1: Would we have a name yet for this thing? I Have like Slapping Backboard, <laughs> Slapping Glass, Slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good.
2: Well, let's roll, <laughs> Slapping Glass.